0: I first talked to Clyde and Gracie Lawrence in June of 2020, in the throes of the pandemic. A friend had sent me a link to a video by their band, Lawrence, earlier in the COVID lockdown, and their music became a big part of the soundtrack of that season in my house. Lawrence was one of the first bands that both me and my then nine-year-old daughter could agree on. Their music was catchy, well-produced, and contemporary. It was poppy enough to appeal to a young girl, but it was also soulful, hip, clever, and funky. Welcome to The Third Story. I'm Leo
1: you.
0: So I reached out to them back then to do an interview, and we had a beautiful conversation about their background, their early development, and their overall approach. And you can hear that episode in the archive at third-story.com or in the feed. It's episode 166. I'll also link to it in the show notes today. But If you don't know about them and you don't have time to go back to revisit that original talk, here's a brief sketch. Clyde and Gracie Lawrence are siblings. They grew up in New York City, and they grew up watching their father, the writer-director Mark Lawrence, working on films like Miss Congeniality, which he wrote, and Music and Lyrics, which he wrote and directed, among others. Their parents encouraged the young and clearly talented kids to pay attention to the work that was being done in the house, and Clyde, in a now somewhat legendary act of prodigal, creativity, ended up writing the pageant theme song for Miss Congeniality. The song became a memorable moment in the film. It was also used as part of the underscore of the film. And Clyde was five years old when he wrote that. So he was off and running as a composer, producer, and artist. It was almost a foregone conclusion that he would end up devoting his life to this. Gracie, four years younger than Clyde, was also a naturally gifted performer who spent time on Broadway as a kid and who has appeared as an actress on TV and film as well. Clyde went to Brown University in Rhode Island, along with his childhood friend Jordan Cohen. The two had already been making music together for years, and they ended up putting together a funky, party college band, which for a while was called the Clyde Lawrence Band. Gracie, still in high school, would often travel to sing with them on the weekends. Eventually, she joined the band in earnest, the group focused on developing original material, and the Clyde Lawrence Band became simply Lawrence. They've released three studio albums and a bunch of singles, live albums, and soundtracks. Their most recent full-length album, Hotel TV, came out in 2021, but they've been busy. Clyde formed a production team with two other members of the band to work on music for other pop artists, including Tori Kelly, Shawn Mendes, and the Jonas Brothers, and both Lawrence and Clyde regularly work with songwriter and producer John Bellion. At this very moment, Lawrence is on tour opening for the Jonas Brothers. We actually did this interview remotely, and Clyde and Gracie were on their tour bus pulling into a venue in Fresno, California. Last year, their song Don't Lose Sight charted on the Billboard Top 40 pop chart, which is a big deal because they are a very independent band. In many ways, they looked like an overnight success, but the truth is that they've been grinding for a decade already, and they still maintain a very hands-on DIY approach to their career. For example, after years of paying close attention to what they felt were unfair and unreasonable deals with concert venues and promoters, Clyde decided to write an op-ed that ran in the New York Times late last year, and then he was invited along with his bandmate Jordan to give testimony in the Senate about unfair ticket fees and artist deals, particularly the ones at Live Nation and Ticketmaster. This has led to some real meaningful change in the industry, and Clyde talks about that in our conversation today. Last month, Lawrence released two new singles. The first, A Breakup Anthem, sung by Gracie called 23. A week later, the new Jacob Collier single, Wherever I Go, came out featuring Lawrence along with the legendary Michael McDonald. And that song will also appear on Collier's forthcoming Jesse Volume 4 album. And finally, I have to tell you that in our conversation, Gracie mentions an idea for a song that she's always wanted to write, but she just doesn't feel it would be appropriate for her band because of the subject matter. It's a brother-sister band. Certain topics are just off-limits. I, however, am unconstrained by any band or sibling limitations, so I took it upon myself to write a song inspired by her idea, and you can hear that at the end of today's episode. Third-Story.com is the place to go to sign up, subscribe, visit the archive with hundreds of deep dives like this one, including talks with friends and collaborators of Lawrence, such as Jacob Collier, Michael Thurber, Louis Cato, John Lampley, John Batiste, all of Wolfpack, Eric Krasno, Ryan Lerman, and if you look closely, there will be more. And many more, and many, many more. Patreon.com slash thirdstorypodcast is in short, your port to support what I purport to report. And of course, the third story is made in collaboration with WBGO Studios. Visit wbgo.org slash studios to check out all of their award-winning content. Here's me, Clyde and Gracie Lawrence, talking it down.
2: We're... Pulling into the venue, so it was a little logistically challenging.
0: Where are you guys, by the way, right now?
3: Fresno, California. In a bus, in a parking lot, in a venue.
0: I was amazed when we set this up that you were making time for this kind of thing in the midst of your schedule. When I was first talking to the people about setting it up, I was like, do you guys want to wait till December? It seems like I don't see an easy day to do this.
3: I feel like we have more time for stuff like this while we're on tour in a way because on tour there's just like hours of downtime every day that there isn't as much time to do as much productive stuff with whereas like when we get home we're going to be going into overdrive trying to finish our album on a deadline i've told our team like anything that you want me to do that involves like a zoom or anything like let's do it on a show day during my free hours Because, like, once I get home, I want to block off, like, three months of, like, no meetings.
0: Right. Just to remind you guys, the last time we met formally was June of 2020.
3: Was that the last time we did this? uh, Because I've seen you a couple of times. Yeah. And I feel like I see you at every show I go to that isn't a Lawrence show also totally We're on the same schedule
0: that makes me feel good it makes me feel like you think I go out a lot which is good that's <laughs> so that just sets the stage because a lot of things have happened since then it's been a, I think a, a really eventful three and a half years
2: yeah, yeah definitely.
3: definitely it's been a long time since 2020 in terms of the scope of our career for <laughs> sure and then in other ways it doesn't feel that different like yeah that's the funny thing from our perspective. It always feels to so many people like, oh my God, there's like all these different inflection points and those things are very real. But at the same time, like we've never been a band where there was like one thing that like overnight changed our lives. So there's these like little 10% multipliers that you kind of go- hit along the way. But in a lot of ways, things feel super different and not that mm-hmm. different. At the yeah, I agree with that.
0: You said to me in 22, I went back and listened yesterday to what we talked about, and I'm glad I did. But one of the things that you said was basically that I asked you, wasn't this supposed to be your big year? And you guys said, every year is our big year. Like, it's always (laughs) growing. It's constantly growing.
2: We've been doing it for a while. So I feel like. Every year someone's like this is going to be your big year and we're like okay if you say so. Um, every year it
3: kind of it is. It kind of
2: is. Yeah, we've had like a really cool thing in our career where it's been like a, a only upward trajectory but in healthy doses and not in an quote unquote overnight success way. So like we've never had the moment where we've woken up one morning and we were like oh my god we're famous now which I think a lot of people do have, which is really cool and just like a totally different path than what we've had, which has been like putting out a lot of content, putting out a lot of music, putting out a lot of music videos, doing a lot of shows, doing, you know, like just keeping the ball rolling and seeing pretty steady progress. And in some cases, some like exponential progress from those things, but it's never... I don't think it's ever taken us totally by surprise because it's always as a product of like, we put out this video, we hope this video does well. And then if it does, it's like, cool, that was a byproduct of us doing our job.
3: <laughs> it's also like when things pay off, they're usually paying off in the moment of like th- something we worked really hard on like a year or two earlier. You yeah. Know? So it's like, if you look at, I mean, thinking about using your frame or lens of like, It was our big year or wasn't our big year every year. So we talked to you in 2020, like in 2021, we released our third album, Hotel TV, which has been our most successful album to date. And then finally embarked on the tour we were supposed to go on in 2020, but with the venues mostly being upgraded in size. And that was a big success. And that album and like the booking of that tour was all stuff we were like working really hard on in 2020. And then in 2022, we kept touring playing even bigger venues, played Coachella, a whole radio. bunch of other festivals. And then, yeah, had our first radio hit. Don't lose sight was the most successful independent release on top 40 of all of that year. But again, that's a song that we put out in 2021 and recorded in 2020 and wrote in 2019. <laughs> so it's like, Was 2022 the Hmm. year that don't site happened for us or was it not that, you know, and the list, the list goes on up to the rest of that year and what we're doing now and all the above.
0: You two have become such experts at framing your own narrative. I actually just spent the last hour and a half watching your tour documentary, which was a huge mistake as an interviewer, because I know (laughs) all these answers to questions now but of course, listeners don't necessarily know all the answers to those questions.
3: Well, they should all watch the doc too, yeah. which is, by the way, a perfect example of something we're putting on 2023 that we filmed in 2021.
0: In 2020, Gracie, when we were talking, you made reference to writing songs about what it's like to be 23. Yeah. You just released a song about turning 23.
4: Correct. Waiting, I'm waiting, might start This quarter life crisis is not entertaining to me. Oh, it's my party and I'm going to cry if I want to.
2: And somehow I'm still 23. Incredible! That's so crazy. How old
0: are you guys right now?
2: I'm 26.
3: I just turned 30.
2: Really and, uh, getting 30. up there.
3: It's my big year, you know.
0: <laughs> there was an episode in your documentary series about the drunkest you've ever been playing mm, a concert, yeah. and you talk about how the roots of the band were as kind of a college party band, and that yeah. even yeah. as you've outgrown a lot of that repertoire and a lot of those kinds of crowds or whatever that you bring some of that spirit with you? I mean, how long can a person carry college energy into their career?
3: I think like college energy can mean a number of different things. So I think for a lo- for a while it can stay, but what that means exactly evolves. You know, like even when we're talking about bringing college ener- energy to the stage, I don't mean like that I'm like getting as drunk for every show as I maybe did back in college except for this one show that we're talking about in the doc like that's an example of a rare show where like I did really treat it like it was a college party but then I think that there are ways that we in a more evolved way can keep that college spirit alive some of which are by just like not taking ourselves too seriously on stage always thinking about trying to like craft a set in which like we're keeping people's attention and making sure that people are having fun. Cause in those college party days, you know, our competition was somebody playing all the biggest hits on an iPod instead of us performing. So I think that like just that same mentality. And then of course the biggest one is just the fact that the eight of us in the band are the same eight people that went to college together Mm -hmm. and played those college parties. There's always going to be some of that as long as it's the, the same eight of us on stage having fun the way that we have always had
2: I think a lot of it is like making each other laugh. Like a lot of my memories of playing those college shows when I was in high school was like looking at someone in the corner of this basement, like Jordan, for example, who I've known since I was two years old. Mm. And then we would go play these college parties together, like looking at him smushed into a corner of a basement. Somehow someone accidentally spilled an entire beer on his saxophone saxophone, and and like like, he's like still jamming in a corner. Some, and I'm like crying, laughing like, that kind of thing, it's harder to recreate sometimes on an arena stage or whatever, but there are still, still moments happens. of that yeah. for sure every night where, like, someone is doing something that is making me laugh. And I think that that's a big part of that quote-unquote college energy is, like, surprising each other, having a lot of camaraderie with each other, and, yeah, having a good time on stage and not shying away from that as if it makes us less professional.
0: Do you feel as the scale of the thing is growing that the stakes are higher and it's riskier and riskier to keep that looseness? Or do you feel as the scale grows that it's maybe more important to stay loose like that and not get too precious about those kinds of things?
2: I think probably the latter. I, I think it's like a classic thing of losing the thing that's special about you as you get bigger. And like, I think we're pretty adamant about not doing that you know i feel like on a stage like this or whatever we're on tour opening for the jonas brothers right now and so playing these arenas in these stadiums finding a way to lean into our shtick even harder has yielded better results than shying away from it and um i think that that's great because that's organically what we do anyway but you know i'm sure someone in the industry would say hey like maybe when you're playing an arena show you shouldn't do the bit where you know your guitarist sits on your lead singer while she does push-ups or whatever. But we're like, no, you get that. We that's get, the most important part of
3: our show. <laughs> we get people. We get people absolutely maybe not loving some of the shtick or the antics,
2: or just but, surprised, or by just it. surprised
3: by it. But it's like all we can do is be authentic to who we are, and our band is not a gimmick. Like a lot of the music's really emotional and really serious. Yeah, but to us, like. What makes those really serious moments effective and not kind of like self-congratulatory pretentious is by like getting your head out of your ass and like not taking yourself too seriously on stage and just like being a person. The more that you're just like being yourself, the more that the real moments in the songs are going to connect with people in a real way. That's my feeling.
0: I feel like you guys have been really threading this needle in a lot of ways. I loved watching how you charted with a song that was essentially about your frustration with the business. Yeah. Yeah. This is a song about people who have been struggling and are kind of fed up with it. And this is what they have to tell themselves in order to keep going every day.
3: Yeah, it's like the ultimate irony. Like indie band has a pop
0: hit. hit
3: with a song about navigating the industry. Are you kidding me? getting sick of the industry i've had enough of the make-believe oh please oh please am i lost or found i'm getting sick of the ups and downs no need to give me the run around i'm out i'm out this
4: shit's gonna kill me but i won't
3: What I like about that song is that the core message of it is like pretty universal and can relate to whatever a lot of people are going through. You know, the first lyric is like, are you kidding me? I'm getting sick of the industry. That could be like any industry and, or people can just kind of interpret that however they want to and have it not even be about their professional lives or.
2: Definitely the song that a lot of people have come to us and have said have you know, and we don't take any credit for this at all, but like has helped them in Mm. a tough time. And that might just be because of how far reaching it was given the like Mm -hmm. top 40 nature of it. But I think also the message of it is just no matter what, it can be applicable to a lot of different circumstances.
3: We've definitely heard plenty of stories that are clearly people having that song hold meaning for them that exists beyond Mm -hmm. the entertainment industry or beyond any industry at all you know people where it's more about a family issue or a health personal health issue or whatever it is so that's that's really meaningful to us and like live side by side with the irony of what the song is about
0: meanwhile gracie i think the same can apply to some of the songs that you've taken the lead on freckles comes to mind as one that again is one that embraces insecurity hmm. between the two of you you've had success kind of fronting these songs that really name the insecurity more deeply and the frustration and that resonated
4: i think my face in the morning's rough did i wear braces for long enough it sucks i'm overly creepy so sick of typical me My TV said to make your eyebrows Then I pull them all out Now fix fake again. I can't win I'm overly critical So sick of typical me I hide the freckles above my knee I'll be whatever they wanna see But then I tell myself
2: we try to also have a sense of humor about everything that we do even in you know this gets back to the onstage antics but i think it's some of it's in the songwriting too of like writing a song about insecurities you know we had a song come out recently called i'm confident that i'm insecure which has similar messaging to the song freckles that's a song that has lyrics that range from I'm not deep don't want to know what death is all about but I need to know that if I die that you'll be proud of me which is like really heavy and then another lyric in it that's like I eat a bag of dicks like so it really ranges in terms of (laughs) um, like the comedy of it and this hopefully sincerity of it that somehow feel like the same song well sucks.
4: i think i need to go to therapy but i'm tough so i'm just gonna cry in bed for free but enough like maybe i've been living in denial for a while it sucks my brain tells me to eat a bag of dicks and i suck and knowing when my mind is playing tricks now i'm stuck how come it didn't do me before i'm confident that i'm secure
2: so we try to toe the line between having sort of epic messaging that people can relate to that feels applicable in a lot of circumstances with specificity and comedy and even a little bit of maybe stupidity in interwoven in there so that you know it feels relatable and like human
3: so many songs are so binary in terms of like the emotional landscape of the song Mm. it's like i'm the best i'm the coolest everyone should think i'm the coolest and the most awesome and whatever or like oh my god this is the worst or you're the worst or i you know like it's like deals in such extremes in a way that maybe a lot of people actually feel in life and then those people have those songs to relate to i don't personally relate to those things like I rarely have moments or days where I feel like I'm unequivocally the man or days where I feel like, oh my God, I'm like the worst. It's like, or where it's situations that I'm in are the worst or the best. I think that like that yin yang of it to me is like what life is really like. And so a song like Don't Lose Sight isn't even saying like everything's going to go great. It's just saying like in these moments, don't let the bullshit keep you down and in a song like freckles it's like you can know that you're beautiful even if you have these things that you genuinely do feel insecure about about your appearance or whatever it might be
2: not to mention like probably as a product of a lot of those songs existing that are super epic in their messaging our instinct is to like rebel against that a little bit (laughs) and just like write the songs that are like not not that Hmm. but there's so many songs I don't know, this is weird to say. We're a sibling band, so we would never write this song anyway. But like, I always hear songs that are like someone being like, I'm really good at sex. And like, <laughs> I've always wanted to write a song that's like, I am might be okay at sex. I don't really know. And you'd have to ask other people. But I don't, because I think that would be really funny. But um, that's like, as a product of hearing other songs, I'm like, wow, what's the take that's yeah. not that?
0: We talked about this a few years ago, too, about how... I mean, you know, we know in creativity that limitations are super useful and you have a massive limitation at the center of your band, which is that you're brother sister. So there's all this subject matter that you just have to be super careful about or you have to frame it in a way as you get bigger and bigger, more and more people know that you're brother or sister. So maybe it's less of a concern.
1: Surprised.
0: Really?
2: <laughs> like we talk so much about being siblings and then someone will be like, so you guys are cousins or like you well, guys how are... do you know each how other? Do you know each yeah. other?
3: Yeah, no, it's an interesting limitation for sure. I mean, we still write plenty of love songs, but mostly then just like one of us sings it. Yeah. But we do like to both sing on songs, which does make it so that the songs that we both sing on generally are just about topics other than love, typically, which makes it interesting just because so many songs are about love. We do have some love songs that we both sing on where like, I think a really cool example is our song Whoever You Are Mm -hmm. from our album Living Room, which is one of my favorite of our songs and like not wasn't like a single or anything. But that's a song about kind of a love song to a person that you imagine might be out there, but wondering if you're ever going to like be the person that you need to be in order to meet them or to be the version of yourself that they would find Appealing or whatever. And I think Gracie and I both really related to that idea in our own ways, in different ways, through our own experiences. So that's a cool song where we sing it together and we each sing a verse each of us just sings a verse about our own perspective on what that like how our own insecurities about not being not stepping up to the challenge of like attracting the person that we should ultimately meet
2: i feel like singing a love song for us will be like us almost taking a topic that we both can relate to yes and then having our own section to kind of like give our spiel on that topic yes it's sort of like writing an essay where you're like this is my thesis this body paragraph is going to be from this person's perspective and this one's going to be from a different person and
3: perspective. it may come off to the listener then as like we are singing it to each other but ultimately i think that we are fine with it as long as we feel like from a writing process it feels genuine that it's like both of us speaking our perspective and it's funny because like if it was like a Two brothers in a band and they were singing a love song. Or I don't know, I'm thinking about like Boy Band. If you think about insane, t- Totally. God must have spent
5: a little more time. On you.
1: Yes, ah,
3: and you hear them each take their own different verse of of a love song, you don't assume that they're all singing to each other necessarily. Yeah. I did. yeah. Uh,
0: <laughs> you, right. You, you might but have I been right. Gracie, you might have been right. You don't know. We, we don't know. You could have been right. Yeah. It's also almost more uh, reminiscent of like what would happen in hip hop groups where different MC would take a different verse. That was something that was just totally. kind of more established in that way
3: exactly yeah and they're not like talking to each other they're just each setting like their thoughts on the topic that the song is about yeah and so gracie and i have done that a number of times but certainly there are examples of really intimate personal stories when it's less of a broad topic like whoever you are was you know a song like the weather that was originally at least derived from gracie's personal experience i
4: won't tell About the weather, not with you. We're not together. Cause even when the sky is gray, I'm feeling blue. And though the winds are always changing, and the clouds are rearranging, a part of me will always be in love with you.
3: That's a song that really resonates with me. That I would love to Hmm. have been able to sing a part of. But like, that's the kind of song where like you want to hear that from. That would be jarring to hear. Like, would it be
2: cool to have, we're always, almost every song, we have a two minute conversation about whether there's a way for both of us to be singing on it. Yeah. And often the answer is no, like it will make the song worse, but it's always something we ask ourselves before finalizing a song because our goal is to be able to, and you know, this actually goes back to our first album, which was produced by Eric Krasno um who we love and whose opinion we we valued and some of the things that we talked about in that making of that first album those like core ideas have really stuck with us and something he was really passionate about was like he was like you both have really interesting voices like it'd be great to have as many songs as possible where you're singing together
3: yeah which seems so obvious now but at the time we really weren't it thinking wasn't of it that way yeah like is this a gracie song yeah or a Ride song and Kraz was really the one that was like we should have as many songs as possible that you're both singing on, which is interesting because on that first album, Breakfast, we only did have a few of those. And then since then, it's been more each time. I feel like this latest album that we're working we're on. you going
2: to have the most.
3: Oh, I was going to say, <laughs> uh, or at least really? the, the first two that we've released are just you singing. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I was going to ask
0: you about that. I mean, that's another consideration that you have to take stock of how many songs have we put out with just Gracie's leading and that, you know, and, and balance
3: that. Totally. I mean, we usually try to go back and forth, both in terms of like when we're making a set list at a show yeah. when we're making a track list on an album. And when we're doing like a release pattern or whatever, we try to not do too many of the same person in a row. I think like so we put out we put out two songs from this new album cycle so far. And they've both been Gracie leads. That I was a
2: little bit of product of just
3: the timing. the timing. I think like 23 was a song that we had finished and that we were really excited about and wanted to put out while we were on this jonas brothers tour for a number of like strategic reasons it feels like it has kind of among the more like poppy sounds of the stuff we've been working on and so in this moment when like we're able to be touring and stopping off at different radio stations or press outlets it just felt like a good one to be promoting compared to maybe some of the other ones but yeah like if we weren't That's a perfect example of like that conversation came up of like, oh, well, if we weren't on this Jonas Brothers tour right now, maybe we would have done a more Clyde driven song to follow up Confident and Insecure. And then 23, those conversations are always happening. I think we recently realized something interesting about the current set of songs we're working on for the next album, which is that almost every shared song, you're singing on it first. Right. Which we were like, oh shit, because then... If let's say on the 12 song album, there's four songs that Gracie sings almost all of, four songs that I sing almost all of, and then four that are shared, but she's singing first on all four, then like eight out of the 12 songs she's singing first on. Yeah. And then like, do we care? Do we not care?
2: Does
3: that matter? Yeah. That was a conversation we just had. Can
2: I pause for one second? I don't know if this is live, but my computer broke and someone who's on our tour is going to, oh. Uh, Okay, I just needed to respond. He just needed my password. (laughs) Um, You
3: should keep all of this in, though. Yeah.
0: (laughs) This is is the stuff that people want to know about. And actually, one thing I learned by watching your tour documentary is how hands on everybody in your team is. And I think it was really helpful because the band is named after you, you're at the center of it, you call yourselves the creative directors of the team. I think I noticed at least. Gracie, with your credit, I, Clyde, I didn't see with yours, that that's one of your titles, creative director, at yeah, least we for that. Yeah,
1: that. Yeah, yeah.
0: I love that because it sets up a structure in an organization that people outside of being in a band will recognize. Like, oh, this is, this is a team. This is like an actually organized structure and everybody has a role.
3: We intentionally gave people titles in the doc that reference and we've been doing this in real life more recently as our operation becomes bigger like actually giving people titles that are titles that would often be outside hires because when you say oh i'm the saxophone player but i can talk to you about what the logistics are going to be people look at you a certain way but then when you say no i'm our tour manager yeah. i'm our sax player and i'm our tour manager yeah then like because and, and like i'm fully doing the full job that a tour manager does yeah then you get taken seriously same thing with gracie where it's like gracie's like the artist so she starts talking to someone about creative direction they're like okay you're like the artist but like artists hire outside creative directors totally. and gracie is doing the full job of what a high level talented creative director would be doing for a band that they're hired for. We work with a
2: lot of great people though, but yes, I do do that. Yeah,
3: no, you totally do. We work with a lot of great people who are not creative directors and then you are the creative. No, I mean, we we talked about
0: this last time I asked you about the direction of the videos and working with producers and your answer was consistently across the board. We definitely collaborate and bring in people, but they have to walk into kind of a vision that already exists and to something that's already been put in place.
2: And I think in our experience, like, that's an enjoyable thing for other creatives to be involved in because I think you know there's a danger if you're you know a freelance graphic designer or artist that you're going to walk into an operation and someone's going to give you no direction Mm. nothing to work with and I know even from our experience of like writing for other things like having those boundaries having someone be like this is what our idea is like, we know you're really talented. So bring what you do to the table for sure. But having those limitations of like, you know, what Lawrence is, there's stuff Lawrence is not. And like delineating that for other artists who might come in and be helpful for us. Like, I think that's a really, a really cool, fun thing. And, And in my experience, like the best creatives like working within boundaries, Cause it's just helpful and specificity is like important
3: ironically the doc which is what you're referencing as an example of where you're learning about all this is is probably one of the most collaborative projects we've done to date in terms of like major shout out to james and gee the the amazing filmmakers we were vagabonding
2: with media and, yeah
3: because they really like came in we did not have a specific vision. Like that idea did not come from us hmm. the way most of our other content does. They really came in with a vision and it, it has become super collaborative and Gracie and I have gotten super in the weeds of like working with working with them to like tell the stories and, and decide the flow of it and, and all of the above. We've gotten into the nitty gritty of that, but that has definitely been like a really collaborative process in a really interesting and cool way.
0: What have you learned by walking into the belly of the pop beast? I mean, I know you've been sort of approaching it. First, you started working with John Bellion, which I think brought you a little closer to it. And that relationship has only deepened in the last few years. Clyde, I know you did writing and and some production work with him on some other big pop records as well. One of them being the new Jonas Brothers record. Yeah. Now you're opening on the entire tour and As poppy as you are, and as much as you've kind of been able to play it on both sides, I mean, there is no denying you're just like in the epicenter of a pop tour right now. What have you learned both musically and in terms of business of being a pop act through this experience?
2: I've learned I'm a pop star. Yeah,
0: it's
2: a really good question. We've had such an interesting journey because in so many ways, like we started as these kids in the sort of soul funk scene of New York, you know, doing our first record with Eric Krasno and being introduced to that whole scene, which we have so much love and appreciation for and still feel very much a part of. And we were sort of always thought of as like the poppiest kids of that world. And then when we're in the pop world, when we kind of you know are occupying that space then it's like oh we're the like left
3: of center such
2: weird yeah soul funk kids of the pop world so we always feel a little bit different than whatever scene we're in Mm -hmm. but kind of like that I think um
3: that's what I was gonna say like I feel from my vantage point in the belly of the beast Mm -hmm. (laughs) I feel more emboldened and like proud of the like direction that we've chosen to take than ever because i've learned a lot of really interesting things but i've also learned about like aspects of it that i that aren't for me and and Mm -hmm. that was the case with the earlier scenes that we've been more accustomed to and so yeah i think it's all about having the humility to pick up things and learn things and then also the like i don't know if the right word is like ego or or stubbornness and confidence to be like no like what i'm doing is pretty badass even if it's like not exactly what this is and even if it's not exactly what the thing i was around yesterday was or whatever you know
2: there's also different things that like different genres prioritize like i would say in the pop world like your outfits like this is a stupid example but like that's really important in this in this world and in other worlds that's not has prioritized in the same way you know there's a lot of examples of what's prioritized on both sides and I think what's been fun for us because we kind of do exist in this middle ground is looking at the things that each of these sort of genres or these boxes prioritize Mm -hmm. and saying okay like what do we prioritize as kind of if we don't have to abide by anybody's rules like what do we care about like Do we care about how we look on stage? Do we care about this specific thing that's really pop music centric versus, you know, New York funk centric or whatever? And kind of creating our own lane. So I don't think that I've I don't think I felt a lot of pressure on on either side. If anything, as Clyde's saying, like just observing what is important in both worlds and kind of creating your own. Like own list of things that you find important has been just very like educational. I and think it's like, like it's exposure. You're just learning about like oh okay these people really care about this and these people really don't and these people care about this and these people don't.
3: And I feel like wardrobe is a cool example. Like I yeah I feel like when we were existing as to use Gracie's phrasing like the poppiest kids yeah. in like the funk soul jam scene. Yeah. Gracie was like I give a shit about what we're wearing on stage and like that was like and you all
2: look terrible
3: (laughs) no but you were like you all like i'm gonna tell you what but you looked the same you
0: had you had it was intentional it was clear even then that there was was intention there was
3: an intentional thing to the wardrobe game which was not common in that world so gracie was kind of sticking her neck out there and saying i am going to break from the norms of this scene we're currently in and pull something from what i assume is a standard thing in the pop world which is to put a lot of attention into what we're wearing now we're on this jonas brothers tour i mean the size of their wardrobe room is like beyond imaginable and and like that's really cool that like
2: makes total makes
3: total sense and now like
2: not just for them, but for their whole band and everything. Right. Like, they have a whole operation. That's the job. And right. now
3: like we've grown our operation with this mindset of that Gracie's going to be paying attention to what we're wearing. And now like all of a sudden it's like, well, yeah, obviously that makes sense. In like, you know, so it's like it is cool seeing like both things that we are really into that maybe are a little different than what this tour is all about. But then also seeing things that like we and often particularly gracie have paid a lot of attention to from the beginning that we're now seeing like that were unusual in another scene and then are now more like what this is all about right
2: i also feel like we give credit to like you know we have a really small team outside of ourselves but we have really amazing managers like that just really have supported us being weird (laughs) and doing our thing and like what i give credit to them the most about is like this idea of exposure of like what exists out there has always been their thing of like you guys choose pick and choose what's important to you but we just want you to know that you know if you wanted to think about a stylist you could and we'll show you what those people are and then we've opted not to but like having this idea of like these are this let's create a thing of what's important to us and we're going to find all the possible resources and then ultimately we've ended up doing it very DIY but choose chosen a few things here or there that have been really additive to our very small operation and so i think like having managers that are like ultimately the decision is up to you and you guys know your thing the best but like let us know how we can just like be helpful has been like the most Perfect management combination for a band like us that is pretty reticent to outsource jobs.
0: <laughs> Are you still doing your hair and makeup?
2: Yeah. You Don't still? judge it right now because, no, no, you know, not, this, not,
3: that's I not have a... it. you know. But you've had some experiences where other people did your hair and makeup professionals and you were really unhappy with how it came out.
2: Correct. Yes.
3: Yeah. It's the same thing. I mean, at the end of the day, it's like Gracie's really good at doing her hair and makeup. It's like me, it's like I'm our music director. It's not like one day I'm going to be like, someone else should be our music director because I'm too busy being the artist. It's like, no, the music direction is a huge part of my artistry.
0: I feel like actually the Nord is your hair and makeup. Are you still standing behind the Nord? (laughs)
3: That's hilarious. I'm still standing behind the Nord. I will say, and maybe I'll regret saying this. I've hit up Nord a number of times, being like, "Hey, can we form some kind of collaboration?" And they've totally stonewalled me. They've so been I'm, like, "Nord." I'm yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> call. Even your color scheme, your whole color thing, was aligned with the color of the Nord totally. for a long time. Yeah,
1: yeah. Aesthetically, it's, so true. it's
2: really on brand. Yeah.
0: Gracie yeah. doing her own hair and makeup still today is sort of like you're still going to go out at the end of the day, even in a stadium opening for the Jonas Brothers, and you're playing the same keyboard that somebody playing okay. at Rockwood or Hotel Cafe tonight is. Also playing. There's nothing magical or different about it.
3: Well, it's also just like, you know, we
2: don't have a room in the bus.
3: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> also, though, it's like as we get bigger, something that talk about belly of the beast of what pop music's all about compared to us, we play bigger and bigger stages in popular and popular circumstances and continue to have absolutely zero backing tracks and continue to have absolutely zero live tuning on the vocals, which is. Just puts us in minority would be an understatement in the pop world in terms of acts playing in this scene that are not making heavy use of backing tracks and and vocal tuning and whatever else it might be. So that's something that like we're very proud and stubborn about that is not going to change no matter what scene we're, we're in.
0: So you made a decision in terms of the sound of the records. They don't sound particularly tuned to me, but the production in general is more contemporary, more loop-based, more programmed. You even talk about in the doc that you decided at a certain point that it doesn't have to be the same on stage and off stage. Yeah. But I will say that I noticed. I mean, like I, I think if people have been listening to the records, like suddenly there were less live drums on the records, and there was like there was a sound that was changing. And I was thinking when that happened. Does this have to happen in order to play nice with the pop algorithm? Do you have to change the sound of the record? I'm not saying that you didn't want to, but like, did you have to?
2: I don't think we've ever felt like, well, I think a few things. We didn't consciously say, hey, we want to make a pop beer record. Like, I think our taste just for these particular songs, every song wants a different thing. And hopefully they feel cohesive among them but like for 23 for example like there's no denying that that sound is poppier in its field than something off of our first album yeah i think that that song wants that and i i think that that's it would be a disservice to the song itself to not give it the production oomph that it desires so i think none of it has felt like an obligation in any way or a like super conscious like we're going to rebrand as whatever like i think it's really been an organic outgrowth of like what we write and what what excites us production wise what we're listening to that we really like um and i think also we've had some really interesting discussions about how so often we're told that how we sound live really is effective for people and makes them really excited about the band. And even though people love our songs, you know, that it doesn't translate in the same way. And what's ironic is what they're responding to is an arrangement that's pretty live sounding. So I think we've had a lot of discussions actually about how, like the way that something sounds live. When you're actually listening to it live mm-hmm. is the best representation of it on an album to create that same enthusiasm and excitement and punch is it doing a super live version of it yeah or is it actually creating a studio version that is super punchy and exciting that almost feels more reminiscent of a live show experience mm. but you're not i don't know if what i'm saying but you're sense.
0: not necessarily but, using the all the same elements to get there
2: exactly <laughs>
1: Ooh, and I am getting tired of these sick and tired of these, yes, I'm sick and tired of these
3: Also and I could talk for like Much longer about (laughs) the specifics. I think Gracie's talking about it like philosophically. Which I love
0: because that's kind of what I perceive. In an effort to represent yourselves authentically in both spaces, you kind of have to be two different kinds of bands in different modalities. What translates to one does not necessarily translate to the other.
3: 100%. But I will say just about every single Lawrence song contains both live drums and digital Yeah. Yeah program elements go yeah program drums going back to the very beginning like on on our first album breakfast which is essentially live record every song just about contains some amount of program drums in terms of supplementing all the kicks and snares with samples do you want to do nothing with me Then on our second album, Living Room, it's tons of that. I mean, that Living Room is probably like the most where it's like really 50-50. Hotel TV is depending on the song, but a lot of the songs sound more like sample drums. I'm feeding a friend. for hotel tv a lot of it was cuz we recorded it in the pandemic when we didn't have the ability to go into a studio like most of that album was actually just made on our laptops yeah because of the necessities a lot of it is yeah just like honestly part of it's our production chops like improving yeah or just like learning how to use those other tools that yeah. we've always thought were really cool but never knew how to use and it's just about playing around in the studio and finding different versions of it i think that there is like a punch that a digital kick and snare pack that are like competitive in the pop space in a way that live isn't, but you can always take live drums like we did on, like we have on many records and then supplement the kicks and the snares. And then you're kind of achieving the same effect in a way.
0: I was thinking about this kind of question, Clyde with you, because you talked about when we first talked about how much you love puzzles and solving problems using kind of logical, you know, using logic. And I was thinking as you've gotten deeper and deeper into making pop music, a pop song is a puzzle. Ultimately, I'm sure your sort of puzzle head, game theory head must be, you know, just on fire thinking about all this stuff.
3: It's a really good point. I think that like our approach to songwriting hasn't changed at all, for Lawrence, at least. I don't think that ultimately the songwriting has really... Change that much in terms of the approach or like what the puzzle is and how we're trying to solve it. If there's something that I've learned, it's that even through working on some of these Jonas Brothers songs or other,
0: you worked on the Tori Kelly record. Also, that was one I was thinking where it was like, what did you learn about what the expectation of songwriting was on a project? Exactly, like I that.
3: think you learned that like it's the same puzzle, but this different version of it. Like, there's a different kind of solution that you're trying to optimize for, and that's really interesting to learn. I think that like a really cool thing that I've learned about John Bellion's process is that I see him doing a lot of like finding a section of a song. And usually it's the chorus that he's like fucking in love with and then making every decision. And this isn't always what he does, but this is something I've seen him do. And it's really interesting, like making sure that every decision from that point on, is in service of presenting that hook or chorus in its most immediate, frequent, and well-positioned vibe. And, like, that's not how I've approached songwriting for most of my life. Like, I want to have a great chorus, but, like, I haven't thought as much about, like, um, oh, like, let's make sure to get to it in this amount of time, or, like, let's make sure that, like, Like, the chorus isn't the main character of the song. It's just, like, a great part of it. It's hard to to describe, but that's something I've really learned from him of being, like, if you have something really great, think of other sections of a song as, like, things that are helping make that as great and memorable as Uh, they are in service of that. And it's subtly different than other versions of songwriting. I
2: feel like we've always, like, had some of that a little bit, just in, like, that we're definitely we definitely have always liked pop songwriting structure. And in that sense, like our songs have never been super meandering. So it's always been a little bit of the the fabric of what we do. Yeah. I think what's specific about John is he's pretty relentless in searching for the answers to, to that question of like, whereas we, I could see us saying, you know, there's a few different versions of a verse that sound good. Which do you like? And kind of settling on something that yeah. we feel good about. John will scrap the entire verse and pre-chorus of a song until he feels that it's exactly perfectly setting up the chorus. And I admire it so much to be able to... It really is like, you know, it comes down to like the Neil Simon theory of writing that's like writing is rewriting. Like we've always...
3: John rewrites more than anyone I've ever seen. Like, And is that
0: painful? I mean, you grew up around writers, you know what that... You've seen it, it's built into your DNA. But you know... We also fall in love with stuff that we make, and it's very hard. They call it killing your children. It's like really hard yeah. to let go of that stuff.
3: I think that that's why it's helpful having another voice in mm. the room, because it's not like you're you're killing someone else's children, <laughs> <laughs> so to speak. So I think that which we all know is yeah, poorly, much much easier, uh,
2: much better. Um, yeah, right. I think I'm a whore for like making the song better. Yeah, and so if someone beats what i had in mind i'm down to let my thing go part of it is that we don't songwrite in one day yeah (laughs) like we have the freedom to say if clyde you know feels like the chorus that i really loved is just not hitting the way it's supposed to Today's mission will be scrapping it. You know, we don't have all the time in the world, but we're not in these sessions where we have to write in one day, which is so much of how the pop songwriting world happens. So it's a little bit easier to kill your babies or whatever the phrase is, because you're able to put out some song Right. They can
0: they come back. Right. I mean, it's funny because I think that there are people who say sort of Gracie, like you suggest like, look, I'll take whatever the best idea is. But the question is when it's my idea versus your idea, will I be able to recognize that your idea is better than my idea?
3: I think that we are totally yeah. good about like, if John or someone else has an idea that we love, like there's no, or even between the two of us, if yeah. one of us has an idea that's better than the other ones, it was like, no ego about that i think that i sometimes have trouble if i'm content with how something is like chasing something better that i don't know what i'm chasing but then like often that does come around i don't know that's something that i found that i want to like be more patient with is like hmm. having a section of a song or verse let's say that i really like but then being like could there be something better and then really having the patience to see that process through and not just having it be as i was saying before about whether that verse you like as a verse but whether it's you know when we're working on a song with john i notice a lot that when we're working on the verse and the pre-chorus i'm like thinking while we're listening back to a verse and chorus that we've written i'm evaluating whether i like it in that moment and i hear him not come to like his conclusion until the first four measures of the chorus have played, because he's evaluating not how the verse felt, but how the chorus feels coming out of that verse. Hmm. And I think that like thinking about all of the different roles that the different sections in your to play is not something that is needs to happen, but is something that's really important in the context of the more poppy side of the songwriting process.
0: Okay, so this is opening up a few lines of questioning. I'm going to try to get to all of them or at least as as much as I can. And the, the first one is the one that I've been waiting to ask you about, which is the emergence of AI, because I think that's been such a huge topic in the last year. And it plays right into this question of if there's a right way or a best way or a better way to write a pop song, what do we offer as creative people that AI doesn't offer? Or are we starting to think that maybe we should use it as a tool or you know i mean like just what's your f- read on that I, both of you
2: i always think about when i did improv for like a while um in new york and improv is founded on like a set of very stringent rules um you know you say yes and to everything you, you there's there's specific rules in order to not make a scene capsize yeah and i remember doing improv for a while and then one teacher once said yeah, I know you've learned all these rules, but sometimes you just have to do where you just have to go where the scene is going and you just have to break a rule once in a while. And I kind of carry that idea with me in songwriting and in other art forms where yeah, there are some there are some rules so to speak that um people say are important in songwriting and often they are. You know, they're they're their rules because it's been proven many times that these factors make successful songs or make pop songs that really hit and and are effective and yeah they're getting to the chorus quickly they're making sure your verse melody starts on a different note than your chorus does it's variability in rhythms and all those kinds of things and then sometimes you just have to kind of throw out that rule book if something just feels good We've had many songs that don't obey those rules. Almost every song doesn't obey those rules at least once or twice. So, you know, I don't have a strong take on the AI thing, except that I'm not personally that interested in it. (laughs) But I will say that I think it's a dangerous idea that following a set of rules is the same thing as actually writing a song, because there's so much more feeling and vibe and just... Throwing out the rule book that has to come into play when you're trying to craft a feeling or an experience, even if those rules sometimes are helpful guidelines, they're not, they can't always be in
1: place.
0: Yeah, I always felt that the the trick is to set up a set of expectations that then you can subvert. The listener has to be expecting something so that they can be surprised by what you then do. But that totally. might be a rule also. That uh, that's what I wonder. Does AI right, right. Like know AI how AI to subvert a rule? Yeah,
3: yeah, yeah. Like AI will then be able to sometimes break that rule yeah. in prov analogy and know the exact or right amount to do right. it based on what people like and what people don't like. I think that AI is going to. I, I'm not I'm not an AI expert but from what I know about it it's going to make a huge impact it's going to be really good at probably at first continuing to help people right. create the music that they want to make and then the line between helping people the thing is that for me I think the technology is already aiding people and in some ways displacing people already I mean we talked about sample drums and live drums like we use plenty of sample drums, and if we were 20 years ago, we would be needing, or not maybe not 20 years, you know, different amounts of years ago, yep. increasingly, we would have needed our drummer or a session drummer or whatever it is to play all of those things. And you have things right. that are doing AI mixing or AI mastering, or even no, totally. just you know, they're, they're, it, technology is already displacing. And aiding, depending on where you want to say, so much of the process of music creation. And it will continue to do that more and more. So I think that, like, the question of whether it's going to start, like, crossing that line of, like, creatively taking those jobs is all about how you define what the creative process is and whether it already is taking. those jobs right like i consider part of my process or a thing that i bring to the table that makes me unique is like my sense of chord movement but like there's already forget like the like chat gpt equivalent of songwriting that will soon exist there's already programs that will essentially help you write the chords that you want to write and so in that way like ai is already helping people Approximate my process, or you could more pessimistically call it AI is already kind of taking my job or the value that I bring into the creative process. So, I guess whether you call this a pessimistic or optimistic opinion, I do believe it will continue to encroach into the process of both making it easier to make music and like simplifying more of the. Aspects of what it means to make music. And in some ways, that will be great and helpful and save people money and time and effort. And in other ways, it will homogenize the product and make music shittier, probably. I don't know.
0: I think it's really interesting, Clyde, that you are not an AI guy because you are such a computer programming science guy you know and 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 that you and i'm not saying that you should should be an ai guy i kind of like that it's like it's not soulful enough for you you know you're into like you know using these tools because they're interesting to you not because you
3: i think i'm probably an ai guy in the like compared to like your average person but i just like have so many friends that are like work in tech that are like way more ai guys and gals than myself but yeah, I don't know. I think that's a great way of putting it. Like I think AI is interesting and I'm like interested to see where it goes and concerned to see where it goes. But yeah, like I love sitting down at a piano and writing a song. So like at this moment, I'm not actually interested in having AI take over that job for me. Right. No more than Gracie's interested in having a uh, stylist to her hair or whatever. Right. Like, you know, there's certain things that you like doing and I like, I also think
2: like one of my favorite things is hearing songs by other people because they represent like that specific person's point of view. And that's like something that I think, you know, for all the ways in which I'm, when I say I'm not interested in AI, it's because I think my, uh, my interest in art is that it's like specifically depicting one person or one collective's idea or perspective. And obviously AI will end up representing Human feeling and opinion.
3: Wouldn't you say, like, okay, so you're listening to someone else's song and that's like an expression of their artistry and their perspective, but like in another time, they would have had to go like custom make all of the like drum sounds in a way that would have like even further separated their particular artistry from someone else's artistry. Whereas now they could just like type in displace like RB cross stick and then like so isn't that already happening definitely
2: it's already happening on some level i think there's some i can't i'm probably not like being specific enough but i think that there's something about like ideas that it feels like is ai actually generating ideas like yes but like what is an idea what is what what a
0: a great question what is an idea i mean right i've got scraps of paper all over the place with ideas right like yeah. but why is that qualifying as an idea as opposed to asking Ch- Chat GPT write a song about an
3: idea that you've had well, i like today. the fact
2: <laughs> that ideas are like inherently a human yeah thing
3: i just think the goalposts of what it, what constitutes like a part of the creative idea process will like the goalpost on that will continue to move that's true as ai takes on more of those roles that's true
0: okay we have to address a couple of other things the first is you chose to put out 23 right now in the cycle on the tour you're doing it live it aligned with the audience that you're playing to and at the same time the god's had other plans for you and they dropped Jacob Collier's track the same day you released twenty three, which I think is really oh, interesting. A week,
3: one a week, week off later. oh one yeah. week off. A week later. Yeah. Yeah.
0: If you occupy these two worlds, right, and you're the pop kids in the sort of I mean, I don't know what we're gonna call Jacob, but in that kind of universe, or you're the kind of <laughs> You know on
1: earth,
0: yeah the, yeah the 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 live musician kind of funk kids playing in the pop world it was a it was kind of a wonderful moment to see both of those tracks come out in such a short amount of time.
2: Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that is part of what's cool about what we have going on. It's funny also, too, because even though 23 does sound super poppy, when we go to radio stations and play 23, they're like, wow, this sounds so like left of five. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it's it's funny, just like, you know, we always occupy this middle yeah. ground. Even our poppiest song doesn't sound really like everything you hear on the radio right, right now in a, in a way that we love and yeah. we hope... Is exciting to people and you know the jacob collier michael mcdonald collaboration still has so many pop elements to it um so it doesn't feel so separate to us but i so get that it i I actually like that for people listening they're like oh wow they occupy this middle ground that is such a spectrum
3: um and i feel like it's funny because like even within the context of the of these like us being the most whatever like this is probably one of the more poppy sounding jacob collier songs right right but he's worked with a lot of way so, more so many bigger yeah. commercially yeah. successful artists yeah. than us on his on his previous work which so is why I, we
2: appreciate <laughs> wanting
3: to yeah so i think it's i think it's just cool i mean it's funny because like i don't think of wherever i go as like a poppy song but yeah. i think of it as just like a great soul it's we all gracie and i always talk about people ask us, do, are we making pop music? You know, that's such a question we always get, like, are we making pop music? And we always say, or we've said at many points, we're making like what we think pop music should be.
1: Or what we want what it to we,
3: like. Yeah, what yeah. we want pop music to be. And we're making what, in my opinion, a little closer to what pop music sounded like at totally. one time. So is wherever i go a pop song not really not in
0: 1982
3: song. right yeah, exactly. exactly
2: which is why it's so cool that michael mcdonald is on it incredible because, like, jacob and me and clyde have bonded so much over our communal love of michael mcdonald like we often you know we've jacob and us well, came up
3: in the studio that's why it yeah
2: is. no we've been like friends for years and there's like a video of us talking in the studio when we were first making the song that jacob posted yeah i saw that it us talking about like our love of Michael McDonald. Oh, Michael McDonald sounds so great on this song. That, like, wasn't a planted video. Like, that was, like, a real thing. And when he sent us that video, we were like, oh, shit, that's so crazy that we said that.
0: The funny thing about the way Michael is on... On that track, also, is that what he's doing on that track is exactly what you imagine Michael McDonald would do on yeah. that track.
3: Yes, a hundred percent.
0: You know, it's not like you. Sometimes you call, you imagine calling somebody because you want them to do a thing, but they're like, yeah, I'm not gonna do that thing oh. that I always do. But he just did it. He did exactly what you want. <laughs>
2: It's like the best version of meeting your heroes where you're like, he does it. So he has such a specific thing and he does it so well. It makes the song better. Yeah, It's he sounds so great. And yeah, you're right. It's like, you're listening to it and you're like, yes, we're getting the Michael McDonald sound that we always dreamed of. Yes. Yeah.
0: I love it. Congratulations. I think it's really cool.
1: Thank
2: Thank you. you. Thank
0: thank you. You have spoken a lot about the whole live nation yeah. testimony at Congress, all of that. But since we're here, I think we just briefly need to try to tell the story yeah. for those that don't know it. And, I, and I'm curious to know sort of where that is right now, because as I understand it, it's led to some actual change. Yeah, I'm actually just going to let you try to encapsulate your relationship with Live Nation and the some of the frustrations that you found in the deals that you were making when you were on the road.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is a story that I could tell like the one minute, (laughs) five minute or 20 minute version of, but to try to go somewhere in the short to medium version of it. I think for years, as you know, we've been pretty vocal about through the process of being so DIY and hands-on with our operation, gaining an insight into some things that artists don't gain as much of an insight into, both because they're not as exposed to it and because sometimes there's a misalignment of incentives in terms of who on their team is actually looking at it and whether those people are incentivized to actually as granular with it as a like focused artist would. And I could talk a lot more about what I mean specifically by that.
0: I do want to stop you right there. So are you thinking that somebody on your team who's just collecting a paycheck would be less incentivized to worry about it or who would be less incentivized to worry about it? a manager? Who are we talking yeah, so about? So like,
3: I mean, on the most basic level, a tour manager, and there are many great tour yeah. managers, but like tour managers are typically the people doing some version of the settlement at the end of the night. And they're typically not. They're almost never, to my knowledge,
0: incentivized
3: getting paid based on how much the artist is making or really getting paid based on whether the artist is making the correct amount. I mean, theoretically, if they're found to be not Helping the artist make the correct amount, they could get fired just because they're like not doing their job well. But and but,
2: they may be incentivized on a personal level if they want the artist to succeed, sure. but in terms of financial,
3: but also like they may be even more than any of this incentivized to do the other zillion aspects of their job, yeah. like making sure that the truck is being loaded out correctly and making sure that this person is doing this and this and that. And the settlement is just one of a zillion things going on and like kind of the one that has the least like immediate repercussions of it being done very quickly and haphazardly. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think that that's part of it, but that's not me saying like tour managers shouldn't be whatever. It's me saying like tour managers have a ton of jobs and like, this is just one of many that they're doing. And like, it's a whole complicated thing. Yes. I think that there's interesting, complicated things about the ways that agents and managers are commissioned where they're typically the next line of defense after the tour manager of going over the settlement and making sure that it's being done correctly. And I think that there's all kinds of complicated issues with that and the way that they are properly or sometimes not as properly incentivized to make sure that the artist is being um, treated uh, correctly in the deal. And that's, I could also talk more about that. But at the end of the day, we've we've always been, me and Jordan, the first and kind of only necessary line of defense in terms of making sure that we get paid because we like pour over our deals like fucking crazy. And so we just started to realize a bunch of stuff that we thought was unfair across deals, not just Live Nation. Live Nation is just a big company, but but like across most of the shows that we played. So we started talking about that all the time. And then when this Taylor Swift stuff came out, About her tour crashing the Ticketmaster website, which is ultimately loosely related, but pretty tangential at best to the issues that we were caring about. But it was just this moment where there was this kind of heightened openness or appetite from the public to just hear broadly about the economics of the live music industry, whatever the fuck that even means. So, like, it was just this moment where we were getting hit up by some different press people or different people that knew we really knew a lot about this stuff. And so then I kind of, at the suggestion of a friend of mine who works in policy, wrote this piece that I thought, oh, maybe I'll post it on socials. And he was like, oh, maybe I'll send it around to some policy people, got sent around to some different people. I literally got a cold email from the New York Times, from the head of op-eds for the New York Times, being like, we want to run this in a couple of days, which was a really kind of shocking email to receive. Because at that point, it was me just kind of expecting to be spouting off in the privacy of my own
0: as a New Yorker and a Jew yeah what else could it be like Larry David calls you and says he wants you to be on the show like what other thing yeah. could be like that where like this thing that you wrote totally and
3: I'm still waiting for that curved cameo but yes until then this this will have to do yeah no it was it was definitely really epic and really awesome but also wrapped up in a bunch of like legitimate questions of like, do I want to go down this crazy road? Uh, Yeah, it's scary. Not only because you are being critical of mostly one very big company, but just of kind of the industry at large. And it also just opens you up to then like being the voice on this. And it's like, well, I have all these opinions on it, but I also, I don't know if that's like where I see myself. So it it was, it was really cool, but it was also maybe, Cooler in retrospect than it was in the moment when it was very cool, but also stressful.
0: And then you went to the Hill and you testified.
3: Yeah, we ran with the article, which then exploded everything. And there was all this other press, including being asked to to go to the Hill and testify about it, which continued to be an interesting thing of like the testimony was that hearing was really, again, about all the Taylor Swift stuff. Mostly consumer facing ticketing issues, all of the above mm. things that I'm passionate about and things that I have some input on. But mostly like I was kind of at that testimony trying to talk as much as I could about artist rights, which was like related, but not on the nose of what it was. One
0: of my favorite moments of the, of your testimony is when you just go and we pay health insurance. I just love that you yeah. had to slip it in like on top of everything else you know, you provide nothing for us. Like, we have to do everything ourselves.
3: Of the $42 a fan spent on a ticket, we received 12 But whereas Live Nation's costs were already covered at this point in the calculation, we still need to pay for our touring costs. In our case, roughly 50% of our earnings is used to cover expenses. So that leaves us with $6 for an eight-piece band, pre-tax, and we also have to pay our own health insurance. Why is it that all of Live Nation's costs get recouped before the show hits its profit point, yet ours, the artists, don't? Why is there so little transparency as to what line items such as facility fees actually go towards? Why is it standard for Live Nation to take a 20% commission on our merchandise sales while we never receive a cent of their ancillary revenues like concessions, alcohol, and parking? I think that people just don't realize like how upside down a lot of the music industry is. And especially in this moment, I, I mean, where um other aspects of the entertainment industry, whether it be SAG or the Writers Guild, mm. are going on strike as they should to try to like protect themselves against all kinds of things that would make deals unfair to them. Like, put it this way. A lot of the disaster scenario that I think that other creatives are fighting tooth and nail to avoid are the everyday realities of musicians. Like, oh, my God, this disaster scenario where we're not working enough for like our strong union to like get health insurance and where our work is like hardly being paid for up front and super unreliable. And like, you know, all these things that I hear and I'm like, yeah, that does sound terrible.
0: And also sounds like my life. That's just like, so the
3: status quo (laughs) for musicians, there's no one even being like, maybe we should have, you know, so anyway, yeah, I thought that that was a fun thing to throw in there. And I feel more even more passionately now, given all the conversation about the other groups that are striking. But yeah, so in the wake of that, Live Nation kind of reached out and they were very open to hearing more about some of these things that we had to say. And to their credit, we kind of came in with a whole list of ideas and have been talking with them, trying to hear each other out and form a relationship built on like the idea that there are things that could be improved for especially club level artists, which they define as like 3000 capacity venues and under. And a lot of those ideas kind of manifested into Mm. this on the road again program which yeah there will now be no more merch cuts at live nation owned and operated venues for three thousand capacity and under which Which is is a massive difference that will save tens of millions of dollars probably for artists Mm. and there's a number of other slightly more nuanced things in that program but those are just the tip of the iceberg we have a bunch of other ideas that we are hopefully going to see some progress made on so yeah, we're seeing some change happen, and of course.
2: So the money that they've been giving people for...
3: Yep, those are some of the additional things as they're giving uh-huh. people additional reimbursements and buyouts for costs, which is really great because not only is that just putting extra money into artists' pockets, it's being treated specifically as a reimbursement, which importantly makes it like non-taxable and non-commissionable by your agent and mm. manager, which is super important. And again, a whole other area that I'm that I'm interested in. Yeah. So I think that, you know, that's kind of the front that we're working on is like being like, how do we work with anyone that will talk to us to make life better for artists? I think a huge article came out in the Wall Street Journal today about the Department of Justice investigation into Live Nation, which is ongoing. And mm. it's sort of more focused on the original hearings, topics of antitrust and things like that, on which I'm not an expert, but I'm happy for them to continue doing what they need to do, but we're going to be talking to anybody, including live nation and anybody else that wants to talk to us about anything we can do to make deals more fair for artists. And,
2: and it's cool that they seemed so receptive to that. Like that's, yeah, it's cool. I think like, you know, I, I haven't been as involved in these processes. I've been watching it, uh, you know, up close and giving any feedback um, that, you know, Clyde or Jordan care to, (laughs) to hear our opinions on. But I think like what I've been so in awe of is I think either way, there could have been a desire to be swayed in a certain direction. Like I really appreciated that at the hearing, you know, like the Senate was going around asking the guests, uh, guest speakers who are giving testimony whether they thought Live Nation was a monopoly and people gave very strong answers and it got to Clyde and he was like, I don't know, that's like not what I'm here for. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's like awesome that we've just, you know, we're talking about things that matter to artists and like that's been the main focus of this journey.
3: The biggest mistake that I could make in this whole journey is like all of a sudden becoming like the antitrust guy. Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> I know be an as much expert about- on the thing yeah, you're an expert Be an expert on, on the thing you're yeah. an expert on. I'm here yeah. to talk about, why facility fees should be more transparent on settlement sheets for artists i'm here to talk about why production buyouts should be like standard and larger like i can talk about those things and i'm not talking about my out of my ass the way i am about other things so i'm happy to be in any conversation in the capacity that i can be hopeful
0: Thank you for that work. Thank you for doing that work. I think a lot of people are going to be really appreciative of it if they aren't already and if they don't know already, because it's incredible. I mean, it really is an incredible story that you kind of organically led to actually making real change.
3: Yeah, I put this on my Instagram when I put it out, but I was like, it's rare that you get to complain about something loudly and so frequently enough that something actually happens. It's not lost on me that It is cool that that is happening. And obviously, I'm not the only person playing a role in making that happen. There's a lot of people, but to the extent that it is something that I've been passionate about and we're now starting to see some little changes on it, it is totally cool. And I don't take that for granted.
2: And like, big, big shout out to our whole band for just being like, you know, to the extent that it's a scary thing, like, everyone was really 100% behind the importance of it regardless of the consequences right of
3: course specifically to jordan from the band who he and i have kind of been partners in both understanding and executing on all of this stuff from the from the beginning
0: when we spoke three and a half years ago black lives matter protests were taking place
1: Hmm.
0: we had talked a lot about the Jewish identity of the band, the relationship between the Jewish and the Black identity of the band, and you were very receptive to answering questions about what it means to be a public-facing band who's borrowed a lot from Black culture and how you wanted to communicate that to your fans. And I got a chill when I listened to our episode yesterday and realized that we, I mean, we are always confronted with an intense and difficult historical moment, and we are in another one right now. And I guess the reason I wanna ask you about this is because you you don't have to hide your Jewishness, but you, you're you very forward with it, and you're out in a very public space right now. You're opening for a big pop band. You're out there in the world, and there's, this is coming at a time where, no matter what your politics are, there's this, an awareness of a heightened anti-Semitism. There's, people are on edge in general. And I guess I'm just wondering what you're feeling in this moment, however you want to answer that.
3: It's a really, really good question. We are very apparently Jewish, as you're saying, both in how we present ourselves.
2: Our how, faces. Our, yeah,
3: we are kind of very much that we've grown up in like such a culturally Jewish environment being like the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So, I don't think I've ever felt very like made to feel like I'm in immediate threat or danger of what I know is an extremely real and like pervasive issue of anti Semitism, both in this moment and other moments, and certainly in very recent world history. So, my feelings on like my own relationship to my own Judaism especially as I'm not a practicing, we're not really like
0: Religious, practicing
3: yeah. Jews. Yeah. We're just culturally Jewish in the way that so many people are of, you know, you mentioned Larry David and bagels and lox and cream cheese and all of those kinds of things.
2: I always think of when people say practicing Jews it's that moment in the, between two
3: ferns. With oh, Zach Paul, Alf and I I, he and says, I perfected oh, it. Like, I perfected. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It. That's <laughs> like the best line, oh, yeah. right? Are you practicing? No, I perfected it. I'm not a practicing Jew. I perfected it. So I think, like, my own relationship with my own Jewish identity is, is like, constantly evolving and interesting, especially as we do more traveling around yeah. the country to places where there are fewer Jews. I mean, I've, I've made this joke to a lot of people, but, like, I've never felt any significant form of anti-Semitism in our touring. But what I do notice is just, like, in places where there are fewer Jews in the country, people very innocently, way more frequently telling me that I sound or look like all the like most stereotypical Jews in Hollywood. Like everywhere I go in less Jewish areas, I'm constantly getting told, oh my gosh, you look so much like Lil Dicky. Oh my gosh, hmm. you sound so much like Jonah Hill. Oh my gosh, you sound so much like Seth Rogen like in a way that's not meant to be offensive, but in a way where I'm like, Oh, that's interesting. You just have like way fewer, like personal touch points for the Jewish identity. All of that is to say my relationship with my own Jewish identity is, I think always evolving, especially as we become more and more public figures on a bigger and bigger platform. Obviously like this moment in time is deeply complicated for that. And I, I, i am like heartbroken for the increased anti-semitism
2: and anti-muslim
3: anti-muslim yeah i'm heartbroken for all of the innocent people in israel and in palestine that are like dealing with the effects of governments that don't always act on their immediate behalf Talk about not talking about things that you're not an expert in. No, but I'll say what's so interesting
0: about it for me, and you have a much larger platform than I do, but I have been suffering because I feel like I should say something. That I want to say what I feel, which is basically what you just said you feel. I just feel so sad. Yeah. There are a lot of political questions at play here, but underneath it, there are a lot of personal stories that are playing out, and it's just tragic, and yet it's very difficult to say anything without inciting something instead of saying anything i've been i ask you <laughs> to say something
1: well i think there's
2: also a tremendous power in listening like you know we live in a time where obviously saying something that you believe in is important especially if you have a platform and i think we try to balance that with also like a heavy dose of listening to people who are experts on issues and and trying to understand people's perspective I think that's really important too and sometimes uh you know there is a lot of pressure to say something and I I understand why um especially in a moment like this where you know you want people to know that you are uh you hear their pain and that that isn't something that you don't care about um but I think hearing is the first part of that and yeah. listening is the first part of that so Personally, I feel like I'm in a moment of just trying to like talk to as many people as possible in my own personal life and hear their perspectives and hear what is making them feel pain and try to understand first and foremost. And it's a very general answer, but that is actually how I feel.
0: <laughs> Gracie, I do feel that I want to say to you between the last time we did this and this time, I feel you to be so much more part of this conversation than last time we talked. And I don't know if it's me or what, what, but I really feel an enormous transformation in talking to you.
2: It's definitely you. Um, (laughs) I think 2020, I was fairly depressed. Um, So, and that's a lot of what I'm confident that I'm insecure is about. So I honestly think it could be a byproduct of that. I think in some ways too, I've just like, I'm cautious when I speak, even though I have a quite outgoing on stage personality, which is sometimes mm. jarring to people when they meet me because they think I'm going to be like shot out of a cannon um, in their face. And in some ways, I am that person. And then in moments, I'm not. But I wouldn't be surprised if what you're reacting to was an earnest depiction of a, a weird moment in my mental health. Not to say. <laughs> thriving now. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think I'm probably probably doing a little bit better mentally than I than I was in that particular moment.
0: Well, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. But I'm also just glad to get to check in with you guys again. And I hope that we get to do this again in the future. I, I love the idea of checking in every few years to see what's happening because it's really fun to watch.
2: Talking to you is such a pleasure for both of us because Having someone that we can have like a real conversation with, it's really fun for us to be able to answer questions that we don't often get asked. So thank you. All
0: right, guys, have a great rest of your tour and uh, see you back in New York.
3: Amazing. Thank you. you. Bye.
0: Bye. There they were, my friends, Clyde and Gracie. I love talking to them. As promised, I wrote a little tune based on Gracie's song idea about not knowing if she's any good at doing it. I'll be back again in your headspace before you know it with another deep dive. Until then.
5: I think maybe I'm okay, but couldn't really say if I know just what I'm doing. I read in the magazine how it's supposed to seem, but I don't know if it's true. Just worth knowing
0: studios production to learn more about wbgo studios award-winning podcasts special concerts live streams and more visit
1: wbgo.org studios